It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings you the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. I'm Dale Spangler. I'm Dave Sawacki. And this week we have Jimmy Lewis as our guest. This week's industry spotlight, we'd like to talk about power sports industry trade shows. The AIM Expo, it soon begins in Las Vegas in late January, and we recently saw the cancellation of the Parts Unlimited MVP event, which is in Louisville, Kentucky, later in the month. Due to COVID concerns mainly, we have also witnessed many other industry events change, alter their approach, or become discontinued altogether. What can we take away from these starts and stops, and does this impact how we do business going forward? No question the power sports industry has been wondering what to do about when, how, and where to present itself to the world, and that's been going on for more than five years. When the dealer news events finally stopped back in 2017 and AIM tried to pick up where they left off, the trade side of the business has really never felt the same. And some wonder if trade shows are even needed now since the ability to launch new products has become more of a virtual exercise than something you do face-to-face. Anyone could argue both sides of this and the evidence from the successful performance racing industry show in Indianapolis not too long ago would make somebody think nothing has really changed or should change. For this week's Moment in Moto History, we'd like to celebrate the first American to win the Dakar Rally in the motorcycle class, Ricky Brabeck. Ricky took home his unprecedented win in 2020. Yeah, and going back to 1979, American racers had not been able to break the top step of the podium until 2020. And Brabeck riding that CRF 450 Rally modified Honda, he was able to take home the win after his only his fifth attempt in the series. And this is, uh, in of itself, it should be recognized. And also, the win was a redemption for Brabeck because he led the event in 2019 until he had a catastrophic engine failure. Yeah, it's really cool what Brabeck has done being the first American, I feel like he's opened the door for other Americans to step up and go for the win or podium and Dakar. We're seeing some notable new uh, people in the this year's Dakar rally, which we'll talk about with our upcoming guest. Yeah, there's some interesting fact about Brayback and his Honda win in 2020 as this broke an 18-year KTM win streak. Wow, I, didn't, I had no idea it was that long of a win streak, Dave. Yeah, absolutely, and they seem to have a stranglehold on it this year. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, this race event shapes up over the rest of the week, and uh, we're all watching to see how they do, man. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Upcoming races. We have the Kicker AMA Arena Cross Series, rounds four and five at the Lazy E Arena in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, January 21st and 22nd. January 22nd, we have round three of the AMA Supercross Series at Petco Park in San Diego, California. January 23rd, the World Off-Road Championship Series, also known as Works, kicks off in Prim, Nevada. Back east, the U.S. Sprint Enduro Series also starts at Maury's Paradise in Sellers, South Carolina on January 23rd. And finally, back out west, the National Hare and Hound Series gets its start in Lucerne Valley, California on January 23rd. Welcome to Pit Pass Moto, Jimmy Lewis. How are you today, Jimmy? I'm actually really good, other than I'm not riding right now. <laughs> <laughs> so as we record this episode, Jimmy, we're a little over halfway through Dakar. It's been pretty chaotic, to say the least. We've seen a lot of changes from day to day with overall contenders losing huge chunks of time because of tricky navigation, riders not wanting to lead out, and even stage six being canceled. So what are your thoughts so far on this year's Dakar? It's been a wild Dakar for sure. It's getting set up for the the top guys now to be an incredible finish. Four more days, you're going to see, I mean, there's always been a little bit of strategy being played out, but you're going to see in the next four days, a a ton of strategy, not just with the top riders, but, you know, utilizing their teams to, to their advantage. You have a bunch of different manufacturers and brands that are in contention so it's set up to be a real epic finish and these guys are going to pin it so jimmy i'm wondering as a as a racer in this situation as you're more than halfway through what's going through their minds right now what are these guys plotting thinking are they panicking are they calculating what's what's the mindset their minds unfortunately are probably a little bit numb <laughs> because they have raced for you know, a little bit over a week. So they had six days, a rest day. And I think what was yesterday was day eight. So they're they're two days past the rest day. And the rest day isn't much of a rest day these days because they're, they're doing so much media. But at this point, you're relying on what we'll call your base mileage, the training you've been doing all year long. And, and it's kind of, at this point, really keeping your head together. And we've seen, like you saw Daniel Sanders go out on a liaison, which is just almost unheard of. But then you start hearing the circumstances of what happened. It was dark. It was super early in the morning. He essentially hit a curb on a on a sort of a roundabout or a turnout. And this kind of stuff, when it happens, is not surprising. But at the same time, it just shows you what level these guys are stressed to. But I think they're kind of on autopilot to a certain extent a lot of them, but in now, I guess it's like you've done your qualifiers, you know, in the Supercross, and now you're you're lining up for the main event. It's just going to take four days. 
So Jimmy, with with you being a former Dakar podium finisher and a double class winner, from your perspective, I mean, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in recent years with the Dakar Rally since your time? Like, um, I mean, a couple examples, you know, like is it the bikes, like you know, them going to four fifties? Is it the navigation become more difficult, or is it the raw speed? I'm just curious, what your from your perspective, you know, how has the Dakar really evolved and changed? Everything has changed. It's really, <laughs> it's not the same race. And I guess when I look back at it, I would call myself a second or almost a third generation Dakar rider. And I would say now we're up to like six or seven generations. And, and generation not in being a, you know, a 10-year time period, it's kind of like how the race evolved. And it really started just a bunch of crazy guys saying, hey, we're going to we're going to race to Senegal. We're in Paris now. We're going to race to Senegal. And they didn't know what they were doing or how they were going to do it. They just did it. And I mean, probably a little bit like the very first Baja 1000 where guys just started in Tijuana and said, hey, we're going to race down La Paz <laughs> on whatever whatever way we can get there. And then it became a race. And then people actually started maybe doing a little bit more planning and a little more strategizing. And then, you know, it changed based on, you know, the equipment got, you know, it advanced, um, the equipment evolved, the navigation became more of a more of a thing. And when I did it, the race was 21 days long, 20, 21 days long. And it was very point to point each day. You really, you were covering a large distance and everybody was in the race. Like it wasn't, there, there were no motorhomes and there were, there were, you know, your, all of your parts were in a truck that was actually entered in the race. And if that truck didn't race, your parts didn't get there. So it's evolved so much in you know, these guys that the, and not taking nothing away from them and what they're doing. The race now is so much about, you know, pure speed and even the navigation is ridiculously difficult, but it's things that you kind of know. Well, now we go out and we really train and practice for this to understand kind of how to decode what the, the navigation really is and then do it, without slowing down. And that's the kind of the essence of you have, you have 20 guys that are now capable of riding very fast and navigating, but then the way that they've started working on this navigation has started causing what we're seeing this seesaw effect. So if you start, it's called starting or opening the stage, you're the first guy out and you're making the first track on the road. And then as there become more tracks and stuff, guys can sort of start following the tracks. They don't have, an, have to navigate as much because they can literally see the track. And so they're just sort of confirming the navigation. But yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an incredible, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible journey what the Dakar has done, you know, going to different countries and continents and, and doing all this stuff and, and the way that the racing has evolved along with it. I don't, I don't know if we're in a great time for it other than it's, I mean, you think about it, ASO puts on the Tour de France and the Dakar, and they have just turned how to make a really good TV show out of an incredible race. All part of the entertainment, I guess, is uh, probably the takeaway on that. But uh, just kind of shifting gears a little bit, Jimmy, obviously you've worked with training guys for Dakar, but uh, go back to uh, your website where uh, the Jimmy Lewis Off-Road Training website where now you're also working with individuals to kind of teach them the off-road skills they need to compete and get better at what they do. I'm really interested to kind of hear your thoughts on how you work with riders 
and how you uh, approach them and and, and uh, bring them into your program. With Jimmy Lewis Off-Road, it's two real complete separate things, like the navigation training and the, and the rider training. And in all honesty, most of my rider training is focused on I would call it dual sport or adventure riders or, you know, we're starting to get a little bit more popular with, with guys that just want to kind of increase their game, you know, in racing. But it's, it's something I've been doing for more than 20 years now. And it started because some guys said, Hey, if he's a BMW factory rider, he must know how to ride these big giant, they weren't even called adventure bikes back then. These big giant GSs, you know, off road. And, and I learned, I kind of had a knack for it and I really enjoyed it. So we have a, it's kind of funny because I don't have like a level one or a level two or an advanced class. We have this one, we call it our series one class and it's very basic riding techniques taken to an extremely, extremely high level. Because even when I do work with some really, really good riders, you realize that they're, they're kind of struggling with some of the very basic techniques. Like they're, they're leaving something out in the balance or the traction and that's what's catching up to him now, even at a very high level. So a regular guy, even a guy who's been riding 20 years can come out and we're essentially breaking bad habits or kind of dispelling some myths about riding. That's where we're at with that. And then we take the same approach to the, to the navigation training. And we don't train the, those two things at the same time. Like people say, I want to do a sand dune riding course. And it's like, are you having a problem with riding in the sand? Or are you having problem navigating which is it i try to funnel things down to the very basics and figure out how to apply those and and really get the the student to understand what the real problem is not smoke and mirrors coaching the takeaway i see is uh looking at your blog and writing tips and some of the the instructional videos where it seems like you've broken it down to the basic steps so that people can understand how and why things happen rather than just you know Here's how you do it, because there's two ways of teaching, right? So I think you've done a good job of, of explaining the basics so that they can understand it and learn it. And I think, as you said, apply it to the larger motorcycles later. Yeah, and we, you know, it's, it's funny because we're kind of known for the adventure bike training. I encourage people to come out. I'm like, come out and take the class on a smaller bike. And they're like, but I, I, I don't really want to ride those. And they want to ride, you know, the adventure bikes. And it's the adventure bike is... It actually, as much as it's harder to ride, it also masks a lot of the problems that the rider is creating because it, you know, like I said, it comes down to balance. And it's really, believe it or not, once that adventure bike starts moving, it's a lot harder to knock it out of balance. And the small bike, it really shows you what you were doing as a rider. And there's a lot of um, kind of correlation between, you know, we're trying to teach the rider to to do things and you can carry those skills onto any bike that you that you ride so that's where we kind of get that technique so jimmy many have said i think eric kudlow probably being one of them that the creation of the the full gas sprinter dural series has really helped american riders become podium threats in the isde so likewise i think i feel like what you guys like you and guys like quinn cody are doing to help us rally racers has really elevated the level of us riders to podium and overall winning winter threats at Dakar Rally. So what is it about your training regimen that you would say is helping these riders like the 2020 Dakar winner, Ricky Babeck, take that step to the top of the podium in a race that's so difficult like Dakar? It's really the fact that guys like Ricky and Andrew Short are willing to put in the work 
and really focus on the, whatever the next step is. And this is what's so awesome about working with top level athletes that are really on, on their game. And, and a lot of credit also goes to Johnny Campbell for actually, he, he kind of funneled a lot of the people that we've worked with. Any guy that you've seen do anything in the, in the rally game from the United States, I've had some interaction or worked with them at some point or another. And you come in and you basically take the, this basic class. I don't care where you're at in your, your rally stuff. And then we start working on things and we get to a point with these guys that you can tell they, they, they take what they learned and they go and they practice it and they practice it. And then the really good guys come back and start asking questions and they're like, Hey, I was doing this. I was doing that. And so we have map books out here that literally focus on a specific skill. They have, they have, they literally have lessons built into them. And when you get to the level of where Ricky is at and where Andrew is at, these guys are, coming back to me with problems, things that that we see kind of the style of navigation training, you know, or the style of navigation they're using the rally changing ever so slightly. And so it's up to it's up to us collectively to kind of figure out a way. And they they challenge me with coming up with drills and techniques that will help them, you know, kind of kick it up to the next level. And luckily it's been it's been really good. This year's a really bad example. And I I guess my only explanation for it is they've made the navigation and they would like to call it tricky, but they've gone, in my opinion, they've gone to the point where that requires a certain amount of guessing and a little bit of luck. I don't like this because navigation is is kind of a precision. There's a certain amount of precision or, or science to it. And if you get to a note and you do what it tells you to do, exactly or as close as you can and then you're still wrong like you kind of at some point here had to guess what you were supposed to do that's no longer navigation and i think they did it a little bit they're really doing it to slow the whole pace of the rally down and it's it's working because you see the guys that are starting in the front you know every day losing 20 minutes to the guys that start 20 minutes back or farther and there's this seesaw effect. And there's always been a little bit of that on a, on a rally. But now when you trip up, you know, six of the top 20 guys in the game, they come to a note and they do it. And the, on day one, where, where so many guys got caught out, when they go do everything perfectly, and then even when things start going wrong, like let's just say it was a bad note and they start doing the techniques that we use to solve that problem and they do all this perfectly and it still costs you from 30 minutes to an hour based on when you arrived on the scene. I mean, it's tough to swallow. And I, I, you know, when these guys train all year long for a single event and it's thrown out in potentially, you know, one note, that's rough. So Jimmy, I, when we get a guy like you on the show, we love to kind of pick your brain because you've been in the industry a long time, well-known for that. Uh, I have to ask you kind of what your thoughts are the future of the EV platform in motorcycling. And, and really, that's a pretty broad, big question. And there's some starts and stops, I think, with Alta and Zero that happened over the years. And now we see the Stark Varg coming along. I'm just kind of curious to get your opinion. What do you see as the future, or is there a future for EVs in, in motorcycling? As a washed up ex-motorcycle journalist, well, I still do it a little bit. Um, <laughs> I... I've ridden pretty much every version of electric motorcycle. I have not ridden the Stark. 
but I rode the zero and I mean the zero and the, the Alta. And so I've ridden all the different versions and it's getting better and it's getting better and it's getting better. But I, I still think that right now the best electric bike out there, I haven't ridden a Stasic yet, but that might, <laughs> that might be the best one. But the, the, uh, OSET, I'm sorry. I always told people that OSET's the best electric bike out there because it's getting people into the game. It's it's easy to maintain. It requires a little bit of work and maintenance because it's kind of, it's not the build of a quality. And then I even rode that little KTM E50 or E5, they call it, which is an incredible motorcycle. Then you start looking at like this, the Stark and the different things. I don't think we're quite at the point and there was a lot of claims with that Stark that are really out there. And when you start digging around and listening to the things, you know, even in the videos you saw, they say, well, it's only really operating at 60% of what their claims are. And I think they're expecting that the battery technology is going to take a jump before they actually release that thing in November. Those are things that I, as a, as a journalist, I would question. And I, and I, and I always said, I don't really know until I ride it. And then when I actually ride it, then I can tell you how it works. But it's coming. There's no doubt that, and, and you, would, you would be ridiculous to not think that, that you know, Honda and Yamaha and KTM have some stuff going on. And the reason you haven't seen it from them is that it's probably not ready for prime time just yet. And there's a lot of excitement and hype with this, but you, you're seeing it with the electric, um, you know, electric vehicles on road, you know, cars and trucks and stuff. And it's getting, it's getting better, but with the motorcycle, you're, you're stressed with such a, a difficult packaging problem to try to fit all of this stuff inside of a, you know, inside of a thing, you know, how are you able to charge it as quickly as you need to? What kind of charging infrastructure do you need? You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that comes into play, but when you start looking at the things, the reasons they're doing it for the less sound, for the the impact on riding areas, you know, to be able to go places where it was quiet. I I heard some really interesting stuff about during COVID, a lot of these tracks pretty much shut down. And then people that live near them started enjoying the peace and quiet. And then when they came back, it was like, hey, what, what, I don't like this. And this is a thing that we're going to have to pay attention to on the, you know, especially on the tracks that are close to civilization. It's coming. I'm excited for it. I know that that compared to the first ones I rode, the Alta was absolutely phenomenal because the first ones were really horrible and not designed by motorcycle people. So it was, you know, they, they didn't understand power delivery, which is very important. And for sure, even the Alta... They didn't understand chassis performance, and it was that was the really one of the biggest downfalls with that. So let me ask you one follow up question to that then, because I, you hit on a few good points, and it and it really struck me. And I've always wondered with the EVs, at least in our realm, right? We're dirt bike guys, we're off road guys, and and really that sensation of riding a motorcycle is fundamental to the to the experience. I just got to wonder, has the EV market really embraced that? rider bike interface in a way that if they could resemble more what we have today, would they be more successful in getting buy-in from, you know, future riders? Because it seems like what they've offered to us so far has been so vastly different. You kind of hit on that, that it kind of throws people off. I think that with any change or evolution, man, the motorcycle industry is probably the biggest bunch of dinosaurs I've ever seen. Like, you're going to put a power valve on that two-stroke? That'll never work. <laughs> you know, things, things like the four-strokes, horrible. They'll never come back. You know, all these things. And this is what you kind of hear a little bit about the EV and that 
the I think the biggest thing that we're going to have to get over is the sound. You know, the lack of the lack of sound because that's part of the riding experience. And I I know this from when we train guys. There's some guys that ride by sound, and you have to you take this out, and then all of a sudden they realize their bike goes a lot faster when they actually feel the power as opposed to hear the power. And so that's probably the the hurdle. But maybe some kids that are going to be coming up are never going to ride a gas motorcycle. They're going to start on an electric bike and then there'll be an electric 80 by the time they're ready to come off of their, their peewee sized bike. And are we going to have, and we're going to have to change the names. Are we going to, what are we going to call them? You know, is it, is it a, you know, an eight as opposed to a five? And then, then we get up to whatever the, the big ones are. So right now you're going to hear all the naysayers complain about the things that are easy to complain about and complain about stuff they don't know. But until you've actually ridden one, I don't think you can, you can complain until you actually have some seat time on it and say, I like this or I like that and, and figure out what works. You know, may, you, you, you may be regulated into riding one of these at some point or another, and nobody likes that, but hopefully when, if that time comes, when that time comes, that the, the equipment is good enough to make it enjoyable because I don't want to stop riding. Well, the future certainly looks like it's going to be interesting from some of what we've already seen. Like you guys are, have mentioned the, the Stark Varg. It's a pretty, pretty interesting looking machine. Jimmy, we really appreciate your time today. We could talk for hours about this. We did forget to mention that in your air quotes free time, you also run a, a website called dirtbiketest.com and, and uh, also a podcast called Taco Talk Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. So close enough. Tech Talk Taco Tuesday. I have a hard time saying it sometimes too, especially when we had, you know, had a beer or two. Yeah, where can people find you on the interwebs and on social to learn more about your off-road school and and dirt bike test? It's actually pretty easy. It's uh, jimmylewisoffroad.com is probably the main one. Again, dirt bike test will kind of take you to all of the other things that we're doing. And pretty soon we're going to have a a whole better rider podcast to help people so they can hopefully listen a little bit to uh, how to become a better rider. Once again, thank you, Jimmy. We appreciate your time today. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you again to our guests for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast listening app. We really appreciate it. Make sure you're also following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and visit pitpassmoto.com, where you can check out our latest blog and our brand new Pit Pass Moto store. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to Tommy Boy Halverson, producer Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. I'm Dave Sulecki. And I'm Dale Spangler. See you next week on Pit Pass Moto. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. 
Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.